Hello, and welcome to Science Unscripted. It's Connor here. And Gabe? We do not have emails this time. We usually... None. Start with some emails. No, we got emails. And in fact, one we of them... We have too much science to talk yeah. about, so we're okay. not going to okay. read any emails. Okay. First things first, let's go into the uh, kind of the, uh, the juiciest topic or the one that's most befitting of late night or very early morning radio. Mm-hmm. And that is erections. The male penis getting hard. Sure. The headline or the takeaway from this is that getting more of them, having more erections, is good for erectile health. So what is bad erectile health? It's erectile dysfunction. Mm-hmm. When you want to be aroused and just can't for a variety of reasons. could be physiological, uh, often associated with poor cardiovascular health. Yeah. It could be psychological. It could be a lot of things. So if you um, – basically, I think most men out there would agree – that if they get aroused, they would like to have an erection. That's the, the point of a sexual interaction. Yeah. And um, what this study shows is use it or lose it, or it's kind of what it implies. So um, before we get into what they observed directly, and uh, they were looking at mice. Always have to put that caveat in there, although the, the male penis in mammals is pretty similar. Um, usually, if you're flaccid, you kind of have a muscle or various muscles constricting the flow of blood, blood into the penis. Yeah. It's stopping it. Then you get aroused. And this is probably going to be a visual cue or something or all sorts of cues. Mm-hmm. And then a couple chemicals are released inside your body. These are nitric oxide and acetylcholine. Mm-hmm. And that relaxes those muscles. Now the blood's going to flow in. Same thing kind of happens in a different way. It's a different mechanism, but with all these drugs, erectile drugs, mm-hmm. uh, PDE5 inhibitors, that lets the blood flow in. That's usually... And erectile dysfunction is when this muscle stays contracted? That could be one cause of it, yeah. Okay. In, fa- in fact, that's where most research has looked. If we're going to fix this thing, let's let the blood flow in there just fine. And the and more erections you have, the the higher frequency of erections, the less likely it is that that contraction is going to stay there or the- this is different. What they did is they looked kind of like further down the line at the at the penis itself, at the, 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 the shaft, I guess is the best way of putting it. And one of our colleagues, Fred Schwaller, there's an article on DW.com that I encourage any of you interested to read. Regular erections can improve men's sexual health. There he compares the penis to like a, a, a banana-shaped sponge. Mm-hmm. And then if, it, if you put water on it, it grows. So now imagine the sponge. What is that sponge, that that connective tissue that would allow the blood to go in there in the first place? That's kind of like fibroblasts, and that's what they were looking at. Fibroblasts, this connective tissue. And they found, at least in mice, that the more of that stuff that you have, the more fibroblasts, the more erections you have, and the other way around. Vice versa is also true. There is a strong connection there, and the conclusion that everyone is jumping to is, well, okay, so if, if more erections causes more fibroblasts, this good connective tissue, then should I, should I practice? Get more? Yeah. Is that, is that what I should do? And um, one of the people behind the study said basically that happens to men anyway during the night of your night's sleep, roughly three hours of, of that, you have an erection. Uh, morning wood. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, what, that's what your body is practicing overnight. But he goes as far as to say this is not something we've shown in our study, so it is a bit speculative, but a reasonable interpretation is that it gets easier if you have regular erections. I'll let our listeners take that for, for whatever it's worth. It, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if they're saying go out and practice erections. I, I don't know, but that would be one conclusion of the study. All right. Should I jump into mine? Yeah. I got two different studies, all both on the same topic. One is recent. One goes back to 2015. We'll start here. 
at the University of Pittsburgh. They were looking into odors, smells, <laughs> and the connection of odors to memory. Mm-hmm. Oh, strong connection, yeah. Yes. You, you were at lunch, I believe, referring to something in your past, an odor that you remember was the breath of a, of a girl you oh, used to like? Oh, I, yeah. Yeah, she, I believe, I was in grade school, elementary school, and she came to school. I had the biggest crush on her, mm-hmm. like months on end biggest crush on her i used to sit in this huge tractor tire with her uh during during recess and she came to school one morning and i was sitting next to her the teacher was going to read us something and she i think hadn't brushed her teeth Mm. we were all kids once it happens and then had chewed cinnamon chewing gum to cover it and that combination of smells instantly turned me into turned me off I, i didn't have a crush on her anymore that ended the crush if i had a vial if i had an opaque vial with that smell in it and opened the lid in under your nostrils mm-hmm. do you think you would be able to remember that exact episode i feel like i can almost smell it from my memory <laughs> i know that I know, i know that's so yes yeah okay so what they were doing in this study um it's 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 a really serious one so they were looking at people who are severely depressed one of the main problems with that is an inability to connect with the past memories oh okay and positive memories are are very good for our mental health and people who are depressed it's hard for them to to recall memories and what they were doing in this experiment was trying to see if odors could change that in any way and they had four different smells in these opaque vials and had 32 people with with major depressive disorder smell these vials, and they recorded what they said, the memories that they had based on these odors. So I'm just going to guess here, but you would have to choose odors that would make sense as a time and a place for all, like like cologne. Oranges, coffee, coffee grounds, uh, Vaseline, a medicine that that, um, clears the the nasal passageways, those kinds of things that have... Probably everyone has a connection to them because they're very okay. It's common. Different, it's different than what I thought. I thought you would have had to have chosen like a perfume or a cologne that came out during a, a, a decade and was very popular then. They weren't trying to evoke specific memories. They just wanted to see what happened, what kind of memories came out when these people, okay. when these depressed people smelled these odors. Then they used word cues to evoke memories with these people. So they wanted to compare what happened between odors and words. Coffee smell and the word coffee. The word coffee compared to the smell of coffee grounds. Huge difference. 70% of of the memories that happened as a result of the odors were specific. People remembered a specific thing (laughs) because of the odor of coffee compared to the word coffee. It means that autobiographical memories are opened up via these odors. I was just going to say coffee. I was about to to kind of, I don't know, try to contradict it and say, well, I I drink coffee every morning, every day, right? What pot, how many memories could pot, although when I think about it now, there's, there is one every Sunday after church, went Mm. grocery to the grocery store. My mom was filling up the cart. My dad was filling up the cart and I'd go to the coffee aisle in the, in the grocery store. And this is totally unhygienic. I just didn't know it at the time. And I would stick my nose under those coffee bean dispensers. (sighs) I loved those. That's, that's a really, and yeah, a really specific. When I smell coffee, I can, I can hear the, the, the coffee advertisement Folgers. (laughs) The the, the The best best part part of waking waking up. up. I can, I'm, I'm back. I'm a child again. (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so the, the second study is 
so we've, we've established, or this study at, from Pittsburgh established that odors open up a, a passageway to the, the past, right? The second study I found from, from MIT in 2015 was looking at what remem- positive memories do for people who are suffering from depression. Right. So they wanted to, <laughs> again, they were using mice and these poor mice. And this links to, to the kind of to the study you were talking about. What they first did was allowed these male mice, a group of male mice, to have a very uh, you know, pr- pleasurable experience. They were allowed to spend some time with female mice. And while that experience was happening, their cells in their hippocampus were shot with blue light. So part was, of their brain bathed in, in blue light. Yeah. So that later you could reactivate the feelings that these mice were that had when they were having this pleasurable experience with these female mice. They could reactivate the memory. Or at the very least a feeling as yeah. well. Yeah. Then they depressed the living hell out of the mice. They exposed them to chronic stress over weeks at a time until they were rendered essentially lifeless. They they couldn't, faced with a challenge, they just gave up right away. They didn't do any of the things that they used to do when they were happy. They were depressed. The mice were depressed. And what they wanted to see was what happens with these mice when you expose them to a situation with the female mice? Do they... Remember? Ha- like have, naturally have, remember? They, a natural me- memory? Do they have fun with them again? No, probably not, huh? They didn't. Then they exposed them to this memory. They, they shot them with this blue light, activated their, the, or they reactivated the memory, and then they became their old selves, hmm. right? So the, one of the ways to cure this major depression that these mice had developed over being you know, drilled by these researchers was just to remember something positive. Whew. Kind of spooky implications for... Yeah. Um, I don't know, brain interface devices. Right. And the, the cells or the, the brain cells that were, were activated with this blue light were in the, the same region as the cells in the first experiment, this, the odor experiment in the limbic system, in the amygdala and the hippocampus, in the ancient reptilian parts of the brain where odors are, yeah, where they're stored. So in theory, if, I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not put into practicable here, right? It's not like you would go to somebody who's suffering severe depression and be like, oh, I've heard about a couple studies. I can help you by putting a smell that would make you remember a happy moment from childhood under your nose. Wouldn't work, but that's kind of the long-term implication of... It would be a way possibly to open up, yeah, a portal to that, those those good memories. Because if if the reason for that depression is that the connection has been destroyed or that the connection is damaged, then this could be a way to open that back up. So real quick here, just at the end, uh, two studies, two final studies, both kind of connected to animals in some way. Um, the first one, the Baltic Sea up here, northeastern Germany, Mecklenburg Bay is mm. what it's called. Rostock, yeah, sure. Uh, they have found a what may be the largest or certainly one of the largest Stone Age mega structures. It's a one kilometer long stone wall. It took about 1,700 stones to build this thing. Um, and it is... 60 feet underwater. On the bed of the sea. On the bed of the sea. So the first thing you're probably wondering is, well, why, huh? How did that get there? That's bizarre. Well, it's because 10,000 years ago when it was being built, there was no sea there. Hmm. Uh, there was like a lake or a bog, um, and they were building it right adjacent to that lake or bog. The glaciers kept melting. The sea levels rose at a rate of two and a half centimeters a year, which is really fast. That's, that's six times faster than what's happening now today. Hmm. Um, and now it's all underwater. And so these researchers were out there in a boat. They're scanning everything down on the seafloor. They saw this thing, and 
um, why, again, why would you build a gigantic one kilometer long wall? It's not a defensive fort. It doesn't serve any defensive purposes. The reason was to help, to help them hunt reindeer. Oh, yeah, sure. And what they would do is you see a herd of reindeer and you would get those, those human beings together, the homo sapiens around, and force them to run up toward the wall. And then along the wall, because they wouldn't, I guess, a meter, it was about a meter high. They're and that's trapped. high enough that, they, that their first inclination wouldn't be to jump over it. Yeah. So now they're going down this wall. And probably, if it's like other similar practices in the past, they run them toward this bog where they end up getting trapped or stuck in the water. And it's much easier to hunt. This is comparable. Or there are other similar practices in quotation marks where in the U.S. state of Montana, they used to, and all over, actually, the United States, uh, native peoples used to do this with bison, except they wouldn't have a one kilometer long wall. They would run them up to a cliff. Cliff only had to be 30, 50 feet tall. They'd fall off and they'd have people down there below waiting to finish them off. Yeah. Back in the day before scopes and rifles. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. So that I, I thought was kind of interesting, an unusual find and just published. Um, last thing also connected to animals is news of Alaska pox, which has made headlines uh, because somebody died of it. And that's scary. Uh, what is less scary is if you read into it, there have been seven total cases of Alaska pox over the last nine years. And this recent fatality, this was an elderly man who in had, Alaska, in Alaska, mm -hmm. who had taken immunosuppressant drugs as a result of cancer treatment. He was he was very, very weak. Mm -hmm. And that is probably what ultimately led to his death in this case. Um, Alaska pox, like a lot of the other pox viruses that you've heard of in the past, chicken pox, Monkey pox or... which is now called M pox, um, smallpox, lesions, bumps, red spots. If you are in Alaska and you come in contact uh, with, with an animal that scratches or bites you, in this case, this elderly guy lived in a very, very remote part of Alaska and there was a stray cat that he was petting and it's it was, cat. and it scratched him. And the cat was feeding on all sorts of things in the forest, possibly voles, which there's, there's a vole pox as well. There's a camel pox. There's a, a horse pox, all sorts of poxes. And that was probably the transmission route. At this point, only animal to human, zoonotic. It's not going human to and human. And only animal, not insect or anything like that? Uh, the, this, it would make the most sense at this point if it's animal to human transition. Mm -hmm. And in his case, he, uh, he waited a while to go in and get it checked out. If you happen to be in Alaska and an animal scratches you and then a lesion develops, go to the doctor's office. Otherwise, everyone listening to this is completely safe. And this is one of those viruses or outbreaks in quotation marks that you hear about. And at first, it sounds scary, mm. especially if you only see the word Alaska box. Mm. You're fine. No, the only reason I said insect was that we got a listener up in, uh, is he in Alaska, Mark? Where's he up in uh, Washington? No, he's in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I said one time that I really like Alaska, and then he sent me a picture of himself with his uh, mosquito gear on, Ooh, saying you yeah. might not like it as much as you think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, this one does not appear to be mosquito-borne. In fact, I'm not even sure that would be possible. But yeah, that's the latest science news from us here. If you have any questions, comments, random thoughts, anything to say on stone walls, erections, Alaska pox, or memories and smells... Let, Let us, us know. Please. <laughs> SU at DW.com.
How safe do you feel when you're walking through a new neighborhood? That's the question today. And wh what changes your perception of safety when you're walking through an unfamiliar neighborhood? That's right. What, what would be important for you or what would affect <clears throat> your feeling of safety? That's the question today. We're going to be speaking with Patrick McClanahan. This is someone who's spent a long time researching crime criminology from a psychological perspective. We're going to go down to him in Freiburg, Germany at the Max Planck Institute for the Research of Criminology, Security, and Law. Science Unscripted. Hi, my name is Patrick McConaughey. I'm a criminologist at the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Crime, Security, and Law. And recently I published a paper with colleagues from Leiden University using virtual reality to study environmental interventions and how they might influence average citizens' perceptions of fear of crime. Patrick, can you just explain this study? You put virtual reality what, goggles on, on participants in the study. What were they looking at? What were they doing? Right. So we had, we created two virtual neighborhoods. In both neighborhoods, the participants were instructed to kind of imagine that they were walking home from work one day and they kind of stumble upon this new area and they want to explore it. And their kind of goal, if you will, is to just explore this area and see if it's a place that they would maybe want to live at in the future. So they kind of had freedom to roam around these virtual neighborhoods. And you're very right. They used um, virtual reality headset goggles for the study and they were, could explore the neighborhood at their own freedom. One neighborhood we manipulated to have what we call dynamic motion activated street lighting. So as they approach things like lampposts, the lighting would increase. In another neighborhood, we used what's called a watching eyes intervention. Now the watching eyes intervention is used to actually decrease criminal behavior and increase pro-social behavior. And so participants are either exposed to the watching eyes or the increased lighting or a neutral control condition. And we want to understand how these environmental interventions influence their fear of crime, if they thought they were going to be a victim of crime in that neighborhood. And which of these interventions had the, the best outcome for people's fears? Which one made the people living there or walking around in these virtual neighborhoods feel safest? Neither, I would say. Uh, the, when it came to the lights, again, I think... What we found was that people felt relatively safe in this neighborhood to begin with. So it was hard to make them feel even safer with improved lighting. So with the lighting, we would say there was no effect, but we don't think that's a, a negative thing. We just think that it depends on where the lighting is and how it's used. And then in this neighborhood, people felt relatively safe overall, so they didn't almost need improved street lighting. But what we found was the actual counterproductive effect with the watching eyes effect. People felt that they were being watched and that made them feel uncomfortable, which increased their fear of crime. So we have this kind of uh, indirect effect where people see the watching eyes, it makes them feel watched, it makes them feel scrutinized and under someone's uh, gaze, and that makes them feel uncomfortable, which made them feel like they were more likely to be a victim of crime. Is this kind of like when I walk, I don't know, somewhere and suddenly see homes with security cameras everywhere? Right, so the security camera makes maybe a motivated offender feel watched and uncomfortable and then they avoid that area. But it, the security camera can make anyone feel that way. So if you're walking down the street and you have no intentions of committing a crime, but you all of a sudden feel like you're under the scrutiny, you might just feel a little bit more, you know, on edge and a little more uh, uncomfortable. And that was the whole premise of testing this effect. If street lamps um, that turn on when you walk by them aren't all that effective in, in making people feel significantly safer when they're walking through a neighborhood. What is? I, I think a lot of people out there want to just, they want to feel really safe all the time. What does it? 
Yeah, so I, I wouldn't conclude that street lamps are ineffective. I think in this study we show what we call the boundary conditions, kind of the limitations of when it will be effective and when it won't be effective. So I think it's important to remember that street lamps are going to be effective when they're used right, particularly in the right place. Um, when you think about this question of what's going to make people feel safer, I guess in general on or on average, now, this is just kind of my opinion. I want to make that, that clear. I would say it comes down to the community relations that they're in. Um, we're creatures of habit. We have our routines. We tend to, tend to stick in those circles. So I think it really comes down to what the ethos or what someone feels when they're in their average, their, their home neighborhood or walking through the same street they do every day to work. I think that's really kind of this higher level thinking, uh, this higher level intervention. Do you share my completely personal opinion, which is that people are too scared of, of crimes happening compared to the statistics on, on how likely it actually is going to happen? People are more scared than they should be? I would say I, I uh, conservatively share that opinion because my, my immediate kind of next step would be, but it depends on what that fear leads to. Um, if you're able to recognize your fear and still go about your daily life, in a kind of socio-normative way, then the fear is okay. Like it's not leading to anything detrimental. If that fear either leads to um, prejudice or hate crime, or you completely withdrawing from life and staying in your house, then that fear is now a bigger concern for me. Um, I think it really depends on what that fear leads to. Personally, Patrick, I am really lax when it comes to uh, crime prevention, I often leave my garage door open, the gates open. Uh, and when neighbors pass by, there have been some remarks like, what are you doing, Gabe? Yeah. Like, there was a break in here. The poles are going to come. There's a lot of these racist attitudes. Uh, people are mm -hmm. just afraid of what's going on on the street. We live in a, li a little German town, totally safe. What do I say to, to the pharmacist is one of the guys who always says it to me. Like, what are you doing? What do I say to the pharmacist next time he says something like that to, to, to calm him down, to, to convince him or persuade him or explain to him that it's not as dangerous as he thinks it is in our neighborhood? Personally, I think when you talk about attitudinal change at that level, you, you kind of have an uphill battle. I always, I always tell friends, you can't argue rationally with someone coming from an irrational perspective. So the best thing you can do when someone says something like a racist remark of, you know, this demographic of people are causing all these problems in the neighborhood. What are you doing? Just simply, why do you think it's that, that demographic? And see how they, and then keep going for, okay, but I'm going to push you further. Why then? Why then? Why this? Why that? And eventually they're going to realize that they either have to contradict themselves or they don't have the answer. And I think that personal revelation re that you make them experience is going to be far more effective than you just trying to give them facts. Because again, they're coming from an irrational place and your rationality is not going to help them see the truth. Patrick, up to this point, we've been talking uh, about how people I, kind of how, how they estimate, overestimate crime probabilities, how they should possibly chill out. Let's flip to another study that you did a couple years ago, which I believe mm -hmm. you put, did you, did you put VR goggles on criminals? I did, yes. So for this study, it's called the Virtual Burglary Project. Um, I went into prisons in the state of Pennsylvania for six months, collecting data from individuals who were currently incarcerated who had burglary experience. I put them in virtual reality um, in neighborhoods and essentially had them explore these neighborhoods for burglary targets. Okay, so let's speak to our fearful citizens out there who 
may very well be in a situation where they justifiably feel like they might get burgled. Um, Mm -hmm. Based on what the burglars did or didn't do with those goggles on, uh, how, how can they make their houses safer? Or how can they become less of a target of burglary? So this is where I want to preface that this is a very American-centric study, and even more so two areas that would be a neighborhood outside of a city, just because I don't necessarily know if these results would replicate to Germany, because so much of burglary comes down to architecture and how the house is designed, which obviously is a very big difference in America to Germany. So prefacing that, Connor, I'm sorry, but you need to close your garage door. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. Got it, Patrick. It's the the number one thing I took away from these interviews was a lot of times people who are motivated to break into a house look for laziness. It doesn't take them three minutes to walk in and grab $300 worth of tools and walk out. Um, And when you advertise what you own, either directly by having uh, your garage door open that they can see you have valuable tools or anything like that, or your garage door is open and then the door connecting the garage to the house is unlocked, you're pretty much just, you're you're kind of like, they're like window shopping in that essence. Or indirectly by, so one of the things I manipulated in my virtual reality neighborhood is I, next to the trash cans for the house, I included a large empty cardboard box for a flat screen TV, indicating that this, whoever owns this house just bought a flat screen TV. The participants really loved this house. They said, well, look, they got a flat screen TV. So I know they got that in there for sure. So some people would even take the TV. Other people saw it as like, I don't want your TV. It's too big. I'm going to look ridiculous walking down the street with a TV. But that tells me you have disposable income. What else do you have worth of value? What else do you got in there? If you're spending three grand on a TV, you must have other values. So don't get lazy. You know, if you're just going around to the corner to the shop to get some milk or whatever it is, still lock your door, still close your garage. And then don't advertise that you might have profitable things, such as by not breaking down your cardboard boxes. So in the German audience, the, the breaking down the cardboard boxes, putting them in the right trash can, that's a really, a really smart move from crime prevention. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Patrick McClanahan, a psychologist talking to us from Freiburg down in southern Germany here, from the or involved with, associated with the Max Planck Institute for the research of basically crime, security, and law. Yeah, and with some pretty solid tips for for people like me. For you, <laughs> for, for me, for for me personally, I'm gonna I'm gonna start closing the garage door. Yeah, you're inviting. You yeah. you might as well. I guess you might as well put a, a welcome mat. Yeah, welcome burglars. I, yeah, my laziness has turned my house into a win, what is it, window. Window shopping. Window shopping for criminals. Window shopping for criminals. Yeah. That Although was... I've been there for two years, Connor, and nothing has happened yet. It's yeah. A testament. I mean, I have to say, we have, we have a... Crime-free nature of the streets of Uncle Germany. We have a gate that the kids leave open, and when that gate is open, you see our entire stash of bicycles. <laughs> and I've always wondered, when's, when's the day going to come where the kid leaves, one of them leaves it open, and all our bicycles are gone? Hasn't happened yet, which possibly contributes to my inflated notion of safety here in Germany. Germany, I remember when I first moved here, Germany feels really safe. You go into an inner city yeah. in the mid- at night um, and you're far more likely, it feels like, to encounter a, a group of drunk people who are merrily going along their way than, than crime. I, that's my personal perception. Yeah, and one thing I've noticed is that you never see police in our town. And it's, it's not that big, somewhere between three and 5,000. But I... I I've been there for two years. How many times have I seen a cop car patrolling the streets of Uncle? 
I could count them on my fingers, on my hands. On your fingers and hands. <laughs> Two hands for now. The fingers of my fingers. Yeah. I, Seriously. But when I'm back in Beaver Dam in Wisconsin, it seems like every 10 minutes there's a cop car rolling by. I, last thing I'll say on this, we park our car outdoors in a, on a long strip of parking spots. Mm. And when my parents visited recently, they were looking at all these cars, 20 cars lined up, and saying, oof, how often do you get a break-in in the cars? And I, it hadn't even occurred to me. Never, in 10 years. Not a single window smashed out. People leave backpacks in there. People leave things inside the cars. It just, I don't know why that's the case here. I hope it never changes. But Germany feels to me, as somebody from the United States living here, like a, 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 very, a very safe place. Mm. Is it perfectly safe? No. Is my assumption about safety correct? According to Patrick, no. What are your assumptions about the safety on your streets and the neighborhoods where you live? We've got listeners all over the world. I'd love to hear from you guys about how safe it is in your neighborhoods and how safe you feel. Send us an email at su at dw.com. W. Made for Minds.